You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. You know things that uh, kind of get passed down uh, from generation to generation, maybe like kind of family, uh, certain quirks, certain passions that might be passed down from you from like parents, stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? Like some of you guys, like, yeah, you're like, yes, I know very well passions and quirks that are, that are passed down. Um, well, a passion that I have inherited from my dad is despising bad customer service, okay? Um, my dad grew up poor. Um, he, he often tells the stories of, like, they didn't have covers, so they would, like, lift up the the, uh, the carpet in their home so they could cover underneath the carpet, you know what I mean? And, um, but he worked hard. He, he ended up being very successful. And, but he, the value of a dollar to my dad was always something he, he cared about. You know, it was something like if I am going to give, and this goes out for anyone, but if I was going to give some of my hard-earned money to something, I, I want a good product. I want a good service in return, Right? And so this is something he instilled in me as I began working and I began dealing with people on a day-to-day basis uh, in, in whatever work it was, whether it was teaching or my first job was actually at a uh, driving range, picking up golf balls and stuff. But he said, even in that, you are serving the customer. Your job is to make the customer's life better. Your job is to make the customer's life, they had a good experience, that they enjoyed their time. That's on you, Right? And so he always told me, good customer service has one of these three things. He called it the, and this is probably a very common thing. I don't know if he came up with it, but the triangle, three things, the triangle of good customer service. If you can provide something that is good, if you can provide something that is fast, or you can provide something that is cheap, ideally, if you can give a customer two of those three things, that's good customer service. Now, we strive for, as Bartons, to give them three, all three, okay? If we give them all three, we got a lifetime customer here, and whatever it is. It's like, we never owned a business, but it's just like, how we integrate, how we talk to people, it's like we think through these kind of um, things, right? So, today's passage, I think we see a clear case that God has built against the people of Israel for the mess they made. Deuteronomy 6 and the, the, the law that God had passed down from generation to generation since the Exodus, all these things that they ought remember and summarized in three terms they had forgotten. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, and you know it, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might so through Hosea God like a surgeon is filleting open the core of the people the core of their air we read God's issue in the first verse of chapter four excuse me chapter one I'm sorry chapter four verse one b kind of the second half there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Like a lawyer, God is laying out his case before the people. God is saying, 
they, have, they are not faithful to me. He is saying, they do not love me. And they do not know me. They do not know me. In Hosea, as we kind of been mentioning over the last four weeks, Hosea is a book of prophecy that God has used throughout uh, our time here. It is passages of salvation are always followed by sections of judgment, although throughout most of the minor prophets, it's mostly judgment, right? As we remember in the timeline, the kingdom that God had ordained through David, through through Saul, but then David and Solomon has now split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom called, called Israel. Sometimes Hosea refers to Israel as Ephraim as well. But this chapter today is one of God announcing judgment. It's one of God announcing judgment. And you might think, is God judging us right now because of the uh, tundra that he just turned on here. Uh, it's like this is the only building in uh, the Midwest that people wear sweaters in the middle of the summer because of, praise God for air conditioning, amen? Here's how I've organized this sermon. I got four points. If, you're a, uh, if you are a note taker, I've got it in four different sections. Section one, here's the problem. Section two, problem with the priests. Section three, problem with the people. And we'll round it off at the end with a section, problem of problems. Here we go, let's dive in. Verse one, here's the problem. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Here's his case that he's bringing against the people. There is none faith. I'm sorry, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 2, compare this with the Ten Commandments. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, I, uh, I grew up in a, I cut my teeth in a, in a, uh, <clears throat> Southern Baptist uh, Church in Kentucky, in southwestern Kentucky, and the, the pastor, he'd always say, hey, whenever there's a therefore, what's it there for, right? Therefore, because of these things, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and in the fish of the sea are taken away. Here's the problem. God's judgment. His righteous judgment is a problem for the people because of their wickedness. In Hosea, we, in, in the Minor Prophets and throughout Scripture, primarily God judges His people in three kind of distinct uh, ways. Three distinct ways. I'm going to lay them out for you here. First, God would weaken His people's strength. Right? And all of these, I would say, if we look close, if we kind of put a mirror up, as we look into the God's judgment of the northern kingdom here in Hosea, we can reflect on and we can kind of see glimpses of ourselves, if we're honest. So God, how he displays his judgment onto a people, is he weakens his people's strength. 
I mentioned uh, three weeks ago in the opening sermon of this series that this was a time of plenty. The northern kingdom was in a, in a period of surplus. They, they were living good, as it were. They had plenty of food. They were occupying a good land. Their numbers were, were they were as strong as the, in worldly sense as strong could be. But the people of God had turned to other things, other sources of strength beside the Lord. Israel turned to Egypt and the, the, uh, their influence and the neighboring Assyrians, Assyrians who would soon um, come in. A lot of the judgment that Hosea talks about by, from God is the Assyrian army is going to come and they're going to take over. Okay? I don't want Syria to turn on. Um, and like Gomer, uh, the testimony of Hosea, Gomer had turned to other lovers other than her husband. The people of God, like Israel, had done the same. And so they weakened their strength. All the things that they've given to them in a material sense is now going to lose its luster as we read on further. That's the first way God uh, judges his people. He weakens them. He weakens their strength, and we can remember that God uses the foolish to shame the wise. In Corinthians, right? He uses the weak to shame the strong, right? He came as a baby, the Savior of the world. He could have come as anything, but came in a lowly position. Now, this judgment, I would say, is evident in the church, the universal church, the people of God today. If you think about, we see the church's lack of influence in the world. We see the world is really indifferent to the church's testimony. You see, when you think of people who are uh, labeled as churchmen, you think the world thinks of bigotry and uh, this is just a phony, this is all an act, this is... This is weird, or what's the difference between this and just self-help, right? Just a lack of influence on the world today. And this is God weakening his people's strength, what they would consider strength, because their strength isn't found in him. Secondly, Hosea said that judgment would come like a young lion and a bear later on in chapter 11. This is a manifestation of the anger of the Lord. This form of judgment is also evident in some churches where they have no spiritual impact because they've abandoned the Lord. They have rejected his word to pursue other interests like a prostitute, right? Where who by definition is is someone who is willing to do anything to get something. Right? This stirs the anger of the Lord in judgment. And lastly, the third form of judgment of God is God is the worst of all. He withdraws His presence from His people. Where God's presence is not found. And ultimately, this is why hell is so bad. Where the presence, the intimate relational presence of God is no more. Only His wrath is present in hell. The bottom line, sin causes death and destruction. The northern kingdom of Israel was living and not, 
not even ashamed of it anymore. They were living in full-on rebellion because they enjoyed the sin that they had been running into. As we will see and we continue on with our reading. Verse 4. This is the problem from verse 4 to kind of verse 8. We see God first calls out the priests. He first, he lays out this, um, his problem. Here's the problem. He first deals with the priest, his, his spiritual leadership. Okay, verse 4. Let no one contend. Let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. He is pointing his finger right on the problem. He's calling them out. Verse 5, you shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. Okay. Would not want to be a priest in this scenario. What's the role of the priest? Let's kind of hit pause, do a little sidebar here. Right? The priests the priest were instituted by God under the law to be a representative. Not only for God to the people as their representative, but as a mediator for the people to the God. To, not the God, to God, right? These people were set apart from birth, out of a tribe, out of a people, and they were set aside unto godliness and service unto the Lord on behalf of the people. Pastor Adam mentioned it last week in his sermon. As the kingdom split, the king, Rehoboam I, when he, when he split, uh, he instituted priests that did not follow any of these credentials. They did not have the resume, did not have the pedigree desired and commanded by God in order to be a priest. But instead, he, he kind of appointed them to be yes men and to kind of stroke his ego and allow him to feel okay about what he was leading the people into. So their role, why they were there, it was to be a picture of godliness by the testimony of their lies. They were set apart. But what they were doing was completely contrary to what God would have them do. Okay? The priests at this time, in verse 8, we see, I was kind of looking at this, is this like allegorical? Is this um, you know, a- anecdotal? What, do, what does he mean? They were, when it says they were, he was feeding on the sin of the, they were feeding on the sin of the people. Like, what, what does that mean? No, they were literally allowing where they were not supposed to allow uh, pagan sacrifices, sacrifices to pagan idols, but they were relying on them. So the sacrifice of a bull or a calf, they would bring these unto a place that was meant for the Lord, and these people were offering them to pagan idols. The priest, which knew better, should not have been doing this, obviously, but they were take and eat of these sacrifices that were meant to an idol. They would physically feed on them as a source of food for them. You kind of get the sense of like, well, you know, to heck in a handbasket, I might as well get fed, right? So they're doing this despite 
clear, clear sin, clear, clear wrongdoing and wickedness. And these are the leaders. Such a deviation from how the relationship between priests and the people were intended. You really get a sense of where it talks about in the scripture that their stomach was their God. Right? So, in verse 4 it says, let none contend. In other words, there's no rationale. There's no way you can tell me that what you're doing is right. You have no, you have no argument. They're rationalizing this sin. Here comes a pastoral moment. Are you rationalizing your sin? Is there areas of your life where you say, this is okay. It's not that big of a deal. Are you, like the priests and like the people, okay with something that's in direct conflict with what God tells us in Holy Scripture? Here's a few that I hear, that I've heard, maybe I've even said, of ways that I rationalize my sin. Well, you just don't understand, Pastor. You don't know me. You don't know my life. I might not need to know you, but sin is sin. And it's destroying you, brother. I've heard, it's not hurting anyone. What I'm doing is not hurting anyone. And I would contend, yeah, it is. You. I've heard, you know, I'm still young. I'll deal with that later rationalizing sin making it okay i'll deal with that later or you know the ends they justify the means so however i end up that'll be okay it's like god's not okay with that you know it we know it and lastly you know what i do really doesn't it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things that's a lie it does and maybe the worst of all the rationalization is that, you know, my sin, it's already forgiven. That's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Sin is here to kill, steal, and destroy your joy in the Lord. When I was in college, I became a Christian in college, and uh, I was very, very grateful uh, looking back to have a man mentor and disciple me. And I was a young buck, like I was just passionate i was like give me anything he would give me i would i would read i was just excited like that and so um he gave me he gave me this um article and it was i think the article was entitled like really creative name 35 reasons not to sin okay they needed they didn't workshop that title i guess but anyway he gave me this he printed it off and i put it in my bible Okay, my little, my study Bible that I had, and I'd, every day I would like, when I see it, when I'd open up my Bible, I would see this list of 35 reasons not to sin. And so it got tattered and wore, and I had to tape it, and then like I took notes on it on the side, and then I used it as a bookmark. You get the picture. It's kind of like, uh, it's like disintegrating at this point. Anyway, I looked at it again this week, and uh, there were really only 15 of the 35 that I could make out, and I wanted to share them with you today. As the priests in the northern kingdom should have shared this with the people, I want to share 
15 reasons why we ought not sin. Okay, I have them up here, but I can send them to you if they go by too quick. Okay? Number one, reason not to sin because a little sin leads to more sin. Number two, because the time spent in sin is forever wasted. Number three, because my sin never pleases but always grieves God who loves me. Number four, reason not to sin, because my sin places a greater burden on my spiritual leaders. Number five, because others, including my family, suffer consequences due to my sin. Number six, because sin deceives me into believing I have gained when in, rela- when in reality I have lost. You see that a lot in chapter four of Hosea. Number seven, because the supposed benefits of my sin will never outweigh the consequences of disobedience. Number eight, because my sin may influence others to sin. Like similarly, my sin may keep others from knowing Christ. Number 10, because others once more earnest than I have been destroyed by such sins. Number 11, because sin and guilt may harm both mind and body. Number 12, because my sin is adultery with the world, as we see all throughout Hosea. Number 13, because my unwillingness to reject this sin now grants it an authority over me that I wish, I'm sorry, grants it an authority over me greater than I wish to believe what you submit yourself unto rules you 14 because to sin is to not love christ and the last one that i could make out on this tattered sheet of paper was that because i promised god he would be the lord of my life sin has one mission to kill you to steal your joy, to destroy your relationships. There is no other purpose of it. The people of God in the northern kingdom abandoned all morality, and God in his judgment abandoned them, but not for long. How this, this is like all good and well, and that's a convicting word, Brett, well, how, I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. I, right now, my mind is clear, and, and we're here with my brothers, and I'm encouraged. I just sang some incredible songs, and I'm filled with the Spirit. I don't want to sin. Well, how do I not sin on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday tonight? Well, it's by being filled with something else. Be with Christ. Savor Him. Meditate on his word. Fill your mind with godliness. Spend your time with people who do the same. You know, for me, uh, it's much easier for me to overeat. I'm sorry. It's much easier for me to not overeat after I'm full. You know what I mean? It's like I love breakfast hash brown casserole. You with me? Amen? Thank you. 
breakfast hash brown casserole is proof of God's goodness, okay? <laughs> but here's the thing. After I have prime rib and shrimp, hash brown casserole is not that good. You know what I'm saying? It's like when I am spending my time filling my heart and my soul with the things of God, surrounded by people who are pushing me to do the same and encouraging me when I fail, man, I don't want to sin. That's, that's a broken cistern. I got the fountain of living water over here. These priests failed to remind it's much easier not to sin when you don't have an appetite for it. You know, there's a, a, a Stanford professor, doctor of neuroscience. He's kind of gaining popularity on uh, YouTube and stuff from his social media presence. His name's Dr. Huberman, Andrew Huberman, I think. He did a study, and in this study, kind of linking neural pathways with, like, uh, goodness and, and uh, what we can do with our life and achieving and achievement and things like that. This is kind of one of his conclusions and I think it's profound. It says, the only thing we can truly control is where we place our attention and where we place our effort. I think that's a profound statement. But if I ever talked to Dr. Huberman, I'd, I'd be like, it's, it's not an original thing, brother. Romans 12, 2 tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God, transforming our mind, spending our, our thoughts on the Lord, filling us to contentment, overflowing even. This is how we don't sin. But another pastoral moment. Hear this assurance, just as my brother Brandon led us into this morning. Hear this assurance not if you leave this place in sin, when you leave this place in sin, when you exchange the glories of God for something broken, run back into the arms of Jesus. He is there. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin and believe again the truth of Scripture that he, who, if we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's just, to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Trust in Jesus again. Where the priests, they made a mockery of the design God intended, remember that Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives, whoever pleads for us. Where the high priests were supposed to be the standard of morality, their life is a living testimony unto the people. Even the greatest of these high priests would fail, but not Jesus. So this is who I assure you, church, not by any power that I have, not by any authority that I have, but by the authority of God in Scripture. When you sin, run back to Jesus. Don't hide. The longer you hide, the more damage it will be done. Moving on. So here's the problem. Problem with the priests. Now we're going to look at the problem with the people in, in verse 9. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Yes, the priests were there to be mediator between God and the people, but also the people unto God. 
but that does not uh, balk at their responsibility for their sin. Their sin will be judged as well. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord. Just like the priests, the people were wrong. Verse 10 summarizes God's judgment. You know, in, in economics, we call this the law of diminishing returns, right? And if it's kind of like this, uh, this picture of like, if you, if you like ice cream, right? You get ice cream, and it's like, oh, that's really good. I'm going to get it again. You get it again. The second time, it's still good. Third time, it's like, eh, you know. By the 16th, 17th, 18th time you've had the same ice cream, it's like, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this idea of eating, not being satisfied, having sexual relations, and not multiplying, forsaking the Lord because they've cherished something quick. They've cherished whoredom. They've cherished wine. They've cherished new wine. They're seeking a quick fix. And you get this understanding that the all-creating God who made those good things in order to glorify himself, he made the, the ice cream and the food. He made them for delight and enjoyment. But now their power is being stripped away because he is the one who has power to strip away. The power of reproduction he's removing from them because they are not doing it by the bounds that he has set forth. They have forsaken him. In verse 13, it continues. They sacrifice on top of mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, under poplar and terebinth, because their shade is good. Making sacrifices on top of mountains and burnt offerings on the hills under these trees. Historically, these were areas of, of grandeur. You know, you get the picture, a lot of, we have a lot of, uh, one thing I notice about Air Force folks and people in this area is like we love hiking and outdoor activities and things like that. And you go on a hike and you go to an overlook and like you're just captivated, right? You feel small whenever you can see everything. You're at a high point, you can like look out and you can see other mountains and trees and you just feel small and it's a good feeling. It's a feeling of hope knowing that you're a part of something much bigger than yourself, right? Well, they're taking cult prostitutes and more sin offerings up to these places similar to the tower of babel hoping that as i get closer and closer and reach the heavens i'll be closer to my pagan gods these these places that god had ordained that had that god had built through creation have been soiled by these pagan activities and and religious idolatry, religious prostitution. These were areas meant for great splendor to look out at, to feel small, and, and there they were being used for oracle prostitution, temple prostitutes. Some speculate this could be where Gomer kind of got her gig with it all. But this sounds an awful lot to me like Romans chapter 1, so I'm going to cross-reference Romans chapter 1 here if you want to take note, where Paul is teaching on God's wrath towards unrighteousness. Verse 18, it says this, just write it down, you can look at it later. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Centuries later, we see Paul writing to the church at Rome, and the people are doing the same thing. And I say that to say, not as a discouragement, although it's discouraging, do we not have the same thing in our day to day? Exchanging the glories of God for a shadow of what it ought be, This should cause us to pause and reflect on our lives. And if there's any room for confession, again, anytime we put things in places of honor and glory in our hearts and in our lives, this is idolatry. Anytime we put things, like like listen to me, your stuff is not bad in and of itself. Okay? Whatever that stuff is. But the moment that it is put in a place of honor in your heart where you began to esteem it. You begin to esteem the creation rather than the one who created it. We got a problem. That problem's idolatry. And our hearts are great, super, at making idols out of anything. Stuff, food, status, power, money, family, We can make, we can put anything in place of where God is meant to be. If you're not saying amen, say oh my, right? And I am too. As soon as they take up occupancy in our heart, we got a problem. Verse 14, I think this is a note, kind of a sidebar in the sermon. Verse 14, it says, I will not punish the daughters and the brides. So men... Perk up. Listen to me. This is a reminder, fellers. Fellers. Yeah, I said fellers. I told you I went to school in western Kentucky. I got it in me somewhere. This is not a question of if you are leading your family, guys. It's a question of where you're leading your family. Whether through activity or inactivity, you're taking them somewhere. It says that the men were practicing with these cult prostitutes. So it will not, when the, when the daughter plays the whore or when the wife runs into prom- promiscuity, it is the men who are at fault in this because they were the ones doing it. Though it's not a matter, and this is similar, leadership the way God has ordained it, but this is similar to worship. It's not a matter of if I am worshiped. You were created to worship god made you in a way that you by being the very nature of a human being you were meant to give praise to ascribe worship means ascribe worth ascribe value it's not a matter of if you worship we all do all human beings on the planet were created to worship the question is what are you worshiping is it the one true god 
or is it phony little gods, lowercase g, that occupy your heart and your mind and you ascribe ultimate worth and value to them? Romans 10, 14, so hear this. Um, the end of verse 14, it says, I'm sorry, the end of verse 14 of Hosea, chapter 4, it says, And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. So, fellas, hear this from Romans 10. How then will they call him, on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is a famous evangelical text right for missionaries to be sent out how beautiful the feet are those who bring good news right pray for opportunities to bring the good news to your co-workers or to your neighbor but maybe the first place you need to bring the good news is down the hall to your family to your wife to your children if you have them this the people without understanding shall come to ruin pray for understanding Seek understanding from brothers around you. Come talk to a pastor. Come talk to a GC leader. Go to GC. Run the race with people who are running it with you. Get understanding so you can give it. And finally, I'll close. Problem with problems, verse 15 through 19. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, and swear not as the Lord lives don't know if it's ever a good thing to be called a stubborn heifer in general but god calls israel a stubborn heifer can the lord not can the lord now feed them like a lamb ephraim is another way that hosea terms uh, the northern kingdom of israel is joined to idols leave them alone their drink is gone they give themselves to whoring their rulers dearly love shame you get again the picture of the quick hit, the quick fix. When I'm done with this wine, I'll go to new wine. When I'm done with this new wine, I'll try to satisfy myself, right, in other ways, in, in ways that God had, had given. You really get the picture of the song, right? I can't get no satisfaction, right? These people were seeking it and seeking it and looking and striving for anything that would give them a glimmer of hope and they'd get it for a quick second. But what they're left with is shame. Uh, a guy that I've read quite a bit, <clears throat> he, uh, he kind of wrote the book on Hosea. He wasn't Hosea, wasn't God. But he, a uh, 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 seminary professor out of, out of Dallas, um, his name's Douglas Stewart. If you're kind of interested more in Hosea, I highly recommend his commentary on the book of Hosea. Dr. Douglas Stewart, he summarizes this. He says, the sins of omission and commission pictured so relentlessly throughout the chapter make up a remarkable, remarkably complete picture of the depths of Israel's apostasy, their abandonment of orthodox living. The Israelites had been found guilty of not being faithful, not loving God, not knowing God. And you see this in his naming, right? The, the city is Bethel. The city is Bethel, and the, the word Bethel, the name Bethel means house of God. But he, like uh, on par for course with Hosea, he, he changes the name to Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon means house of wickedness, okay? House of wickedness. There are many similarities that cause for alarm for our culture today. 
our warning creeping as we creep closer and closer to our cultures looking like that of the northern kingdom we read about. Hear this, hear this warning from Jesus again in Matthew 16. What good is it for a man to gain the world? What good is it for you to gain the world and yet forfeit your, your soul? Would we not leave this place and repent superficially? But would we examine our hearts and our lives and allow people into our lives to maybe call out blind spots that we have? Because I promise you, God is so much better than sin. And I think you know that. You've tasted, you've seen at some point of his goodness, his mercy, his kindness. And so I leave you with this. This quote from John Piper. Be encouraged. It says, there is no disease, no addiction, no demon, no bad habit, no fault, no vice, no weakness, no tempter, no moodiness, no pride, no self-pity, no strife, no jealousy, no perversion, no greed, no laziness that Christ will not overcome as the enemy of His honor. Jesus has prevailed, is prevailing, and will prevail over sin and unrighteousness. He took it to death. But being like God could not be controlled by death. The good news is He raised back to life on that third day. Amen? And the power of the Spirit conquered sin for us on our behalf. Died the death we should have died. Accepted the wrath that we should have accepted. He was the only one eligible to take up the wrath that we deserve. So, hear God through Hosea. Receive these words, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray.